This is the Relearn Our History podcast. Journey with us as we travel from Central all the way to Eastern Africa. Let's relearn our history. Karibu. Hello, welcome to the second episode of Relearn Our History. In this episode, we're going to look at the slaves from East Africa. Who traded in slaves? Where did the slaves come from? Where did the slaves go to? And how did the slave trade in East Africa end? Have you been to Zanzibar? If you haven't and live in East Africa, you should give it a go if you can. It is a beautiful place. Zanzibar is a semi-autonomous region off the coast of Tanzania. The territory many know as Zanzibar is actually not one island, but many small ones, about 40 or so, mostly uninhabited. Two not so large ones, Latham and Mafia, and two large ones, Ugunja and Pemba. Ugunja has the territory's capital city, Zanzibar City. So anyway, back to the beauty of Zanzibar. I went to Ugunja for the first time last year to a beautiful but simple hotel with the most delicious seafood I have ever eaten, coupled with fresh vegetables. On this trip, I visited a spice farm. There are quite a number on the Mjini Magaribi region, which is closer to the Swahili seas, otherwise known as the Indian Ocean. This fragrant farm had cloves, garlic, ginger, red curry, and many other spices. There was also a hole in the ground with brick walls which our guide casually told us that was where they kept the slaves on their way to the slave ships. That the history of slavery in Eastern Africa is so casually told is of course partly due to the lack of understanding of what it was and the impact it had on the people, the ones captured as slaves and those left behind. This episode will try to fill in these information gaps that we all have. Let's start with a little bit of the history of slavery. The origin of the word slave is somewhat debated. Many historians and linguists claim it's a derivative of the name Slavs, who were people from Eastern Europe that were captured as slaves by first the Romans and later the Muslims who inhabited Spain in the 9th century CE. But we know for sure that the concept of slavery is as old as humanity. In most Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam and Christianity, you see mention of slaves who are regarded as a separate class in society and mostly treated and regarded quite poorly. So you see, slavery was not invented by the Americans. Although the African-American slave trade is one of the best known and largest skilled trade in human bodies and dignity. We will start with slavery in African societies before the trade from the region began and then move to the trade from Eastern Africa to various parts of the world. Like in most other places in the world, there were slaves in many African societies, especially those that were hierarchical. For example, you have the Asante and Ahomi in West Africa. In many societies, the slaves were mostly for domestic purposes, but in others, they took on the labor-intensive jobs. The first documented evidence of slave trade in Africa is etched in a stone carving from 2900 BCE, showing captured Nubians packed into a ship headed to Egypt. If you're interested in North African history, I would suggest you read not only Egyptian history, but also the history of some of the great kingdoms in that region, such as some of the kingdoms of the Nubians. Anyway, let's move closer to our main area of interest, Eastern Africa. In Ethiopia, slavery was as old as God, as they say. The Ethiopian texts from as far back as 1495 BCE, referring to slavery. Slaves seem to have primarily come from other kingdoms in the same region, such as the Aksumite kingdom that was in modern-day Eritrea. 
One of the first laws that is known to modern scholars that intended to regulate slavery is from Ethiopia from the 1200s, stating that prisoners of war could become slaves because, and I quote, But war and the strength of horses brings them to the service of others, because the law of war and of victory makes the vanquished slaves of the victors. This law was part of the Fethanagast, the law of the kings. This law also included many other instances that one could be enslaved, such as if a woman married a slave, she became a slave as well. Some petty criminals were sometimes enslaved as punishment. Non-believers of the Christian faith could also be enslaved. It also laid out situations when a slave had to be freed, such as if the slave had served two generations of the owner's family, or if the slave was captured as a prisoner of war and came back voluntarily to his or her owner. But for the most part in Ethiopia, the institution of slavery was not very well regulated, since most politically powerful people owned slaves, some in the thousands. In other parts of East Africa, documentation is a bit scarce, but there are some societies such as the Yao and Makua in Mozambique and southern Tanzania that also traded in prisoners of war. In the East African coastal region, we have the Swahili people who kept slaves for domestic work. In these communities, after they adopted Islam, slaves were non-Muslims and worked in the homes, but also in the farms and estates. So let's move into the trade in slaves. Although the trade in slaves in the Indian Ocean, from the coast of Africa to various regions, including the Roman Empire, is recorded as early as 2500 BCE, the trade to the Middle East was the largest and increased gradually from the 7th century. In the earlier years of the slave trade to the Middle East, female slaves were favored over male slaves. Although a small number of these women were taken as wives, majority were turned into concubines living in harems. During this period, the African male slaves were for the most part castrated and used to guard over the harems. Those male slaves that were lucky enough to escape the dehumanizing castration ended up working in the fields while others became teachers. But we also have documentation of slaves ending up as sailors in Persia, soldiers in the Omani army, pearl divers in the Gulf, workers in the salt pans in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. One of the interesting aspects of the Africans taken as slaves to the Arab world is that children born from the union of a Muslim man and his female slave was born free. This is in line with the teachings of the Quran. While this is fortunate for the children, it meant that there was a need to keep replenishing the supply of African slaves in the Middle East. According to one account, Oromo women were particularly attractive as slaves. The slavers liked their more reddish complexion and their beauty and willing sexual temperament. Gag. Whatever willing means when the woman is a slave and has no choice. The Oromo are a people indigenous primarily to modern-day Ethiopia with some in Kenya and Somalia. So where did the slaves to feed this insatiable appetite for African labor come from? And where were the people captured as slaves taken? So slaves were captured mostly through wars. These were either organic wars or wars incited for the sole purpose of capturing prisoners of war. The slaves came from different communities, from Malawi, Mozambique, Tanzania, DRC, Uganda, and so on. There were several African communities that participated in a large way in the slave trade. So who were those? In the north, the Somali and Afar Muslim Sultanates captured and sold the Bantu people from the interior communities as slaves in their ports. In later years, the Christian Amhara and the Oromo systematically raided the Muslim Somali in modern-day Ethiopia to obtain slaves well into the 1930s. In modern-day Kenya and Tanzania, there were the Swahili, predominantly located at the coast, who traded with the communities from the interior and the Arabs and other foreigners. 
We had the Yeke operating further north around Lake Tanganyika under the leadership of Chief Msiri of Katanga and the Nyamwezi Chief Mirambo. These two African chiefs established a short-lived trading and raiding kingdom at Urambo during the 1860s to 70s. Slaves were brought to them from as far west as southern Angola. Also in Kenya, we had the Kamba, who were the primary community from modern-day Kenya that were involved in the trade, together with the Oromo and the Somali from the northern parts of Kenya. Moving further south, the Zambezi River was a major slave trade route. The Prazeros, which was a term used to refer to descendants of Portuguese fathers and African mothers, operated mostly along the Zambezi River. The Yao of southern Tanzania and northern Mozambique worked northeast of the Zambezi River, while the Makua operated to the east of the Yao, closer to the coast. In Angola, we have the Mbagala, who formed raiding bands waging war on other African communities and captured people to be sold as slaves to the Arab and later European traders at the coast. So those are just a few of the communities that were involved in the slave trade. Nani? Who's that? Who you, uh, huh? oh. Who's that? Is that the one? Mm. <laughs> what the one? Hamed bin Mohammed Murjebi a.k.a. Tipu Tip, was a trader of African and Arab descent. Tipu Tip was derived from the sounds his guns made as he conducted raids to capture slaves in communities along his trade routes from Zanzibar to the East African interior. His mother was an African woman taken as a slave turned concubine and his father was an Arab slave trader. At the age of 12, he started going on trips with his older brothers and uncles, and by the time he was 18, he was introduced to the ivory trade by his father. Pictures of Tipu Tip show a man with a broad nose, calm, knowing, or tired eyes, a bushy beard, and a turban. By the time he was in his mid-twenties, he had become renowned in the region for his ruthless raids and organizing large trade caravans of more than 4,000 men. He considered himself a fair man and expected nothing but loyalty from the porters in his caravan and was ruthless when dealing with deserters. He was a true capitalist, trading with whoever had the goods, but he also got into a few conflicts. In his book, he narrates of a time when some of his men shot an elephant which yielded a good amount of ivory. But the problem was, the elephant was on a territory claimed by a chief of the area, Mkasiwa, because it, the elephant, had been killed in the village and was their property. I replied that the tasks were ours and that we were not giving them up. So a remarkable dispute developed. No progress was made and war became inevitable. They insisted on giving them up and I insisted on retaining them. My father said they were not leaving us and so did Nyaso. Nyaso was his mother. Chief Mkasia and Wali bin Salum decided on war. We were ready for them. But the war wasn't to be because on the day Mkasiwa decided to attack, war broke out in another region and Mkasiwa now needed Tipu's help in the war. As a chief in the interior, this was mostly how wars with Tipu went. You either needed him to help you out with your warring neighbors or you traded with him, even though reluctantly for some, since he had superior firepower. By the 1880s, Tipu had organized a somewhat structured state in the eastern and central Congo area. He ruled by either using existing chiefs or removing existing ones and replacing them with his preferred ones. So he was a colonizer, just black. Around the same time, King Leopold II of Belgium was making his plans of empire and his claim to the Congo Basin was recognized by other Europeans. Remember him from our first episode? If you haven't listened already, please go on and listen. Anyway, back to Tipu. In 1886, a fight broke out between Tipu's men who had a fort at Sandy Falls, now called Boyoma Falls, and Leopold's men who had a fort nearby. 
The fight was over a woman that had been held as a slave that Tipu's men claimed one of Leopold's men, Walter Dean, had stolen from their fort. Walter claimed the woman had run away to their fort after being beaten brutally by her master. Tipu's men attacked Leopold's fort and after a four-day siege, Leopold's men abandoned the fort and Tipu's men moved in. This prompted Tipu to bring in more of his people into the Congo, specifically the area around Boyoma Falls. In 1887, Henry Morton Stanley, also covered in our first episode, went to Zanzibar and proposed to the Sultan that Tipu becomes a governor for the Congo Free State. The Sultan and Leopold agreed with this plan, which Stanley then proposed to Tipu, who accepted this proposal. Tipu signed an agreement and he was made Wali, or governor, of Stanley Falls. This made the other Arab slave traders a little mad and they saw him as a traitor. But his collaboration with Leopold and his governorship did not last very long. In 1890, he left the Congo region for the last time for Zanzibar and died in 1905. The British had long been fascinated by Tipu, and when he died, there was some coverage in the British newspapers. This is from the Glasgow Herald in 1905. His death closes a blood-stained career, which must not, however, be judged solely by European standards. Though judged by any standard, he was a terrible scourge to the unfortunate natives of Central Africa, from whose blood and misery he derived his great wealth. Nani? Who's that? Who you are? Huh? Oh, who's that? Is that the one? Mm. Who... <laughs> oh, the one that... <laughs> I don't know that. Mm. So, in the first part of this episode, we covered a general history of the slave trade in Eastern and Central Africa, in which African communities were involved in the trade. Now, we will go into what caused the spike in the demand for slaves in the late 18th century and where the slaves taken from the region ended up. In the 1700s, the slave trade intensified as the trade between the coastal trading posts and internal trade markets grew. Now, in addition to the Middle East slave markets, the French had set up sugar and coffee plantations in Mauritius and Reunion. The Omani Arabs had also set up clove plantations in Ogunja and Pemba in Zanzibar. These plantations, like elsewhere in the world, increased the demand for free slave labor, which, like elsewhere again, had Arabs and Europeans alike looking to African women, men, and children to provide this labor. At the end of August 1791, there were slave revolts in what is today known as Haiti and the Dominican Republic. The Haitian Revolution is one of the most successful revolutions in history that culminated in the former colony gaining independence in 1804. This revolution started the calls in the Western world for the abolition of slavery. The Haitian Revolution had a direct effect on the slave trade in East Africa, as the plantations in modern-day Haiti now needed labor. In 1794, the French had outlawed slavery in all French colonies, but in 1802, Napoleon Bonaparte I attempted to restore slavery in Haiti and other colonies, but this failed. He then decided to subsidize slave ships to the islands to hit the cries of plantation owners in Haiti. Although the West African trade provided most of the slaves, the price of slaves increased, resulting in slave traders looking for alternative sources of slaves. This began the previously mostly inexistent transatlantic trade from Eastern Africa to the West Indies. The journey from Mozambique to Haiti took more than a hundred days, and a significant percentage of the slaves on board died. But with the high demand for slaves, this route was still profitable. Slave ships would sail from the French ports to Eastern African ports, buy slaves along the coast, then sail through the Cape of Good Hope in the south to Haiti. Many of the French slave traders stopped at the Cape of Good Hope, which was by then a colony run by the Dutch East India Company. This stopping point provided them with a break in the long middle passage. 
The ship's captains often sold some of the slaves at the Cape to rid them of slaves least able to survive the Atlantic crossing. In addition to the French trading in slaves from the East African coast to Haiti, the French and Arabs also traded slaves to African French colonies of Reunion and Mauritius. The French outlawed slavery in its colonies in the mid-1800s, so the slaves in the sugar plantations were emancipated. As elsewhere in the world, these plantations only made any money if they used free slave labor. At first, to provide the slave labor needed in these islands, the British allowed the importation of Indian laborers by the French plantation owners to Mauritius and Reunion. But the conditions on the French sugar plantations in the Reunion were so harsh that most of the Indian laborers could not go. The French traders now had to find an alternative source of slaves. The slave traders took to Mozambique, Madagascar and Zanzibar to supply the slaves. Let's focus first on the slave trade in Madagascar and then Mozambique. In Madagascar as in many other places, the institution of slavery existed for many centuries. In the 1820s, the Marina Kingdom, which was supported by the British, took control of major trade routes in Madagascar. The kings and queens that led that kingdom encouraged the armies to raid cattle and slaves from the communities they invaded and took over. The motto of one of the Marina rulers, Queen Rana Valona, was thin them, take their property, and make slaves of their wives and children. Most of these captured slaves were sold in the internal slave market. The Marina Kingdom entered into a treaty with the British to ban the export of slaves, and this led to more prisoners of war than could be sold in the internal slave market. So the kingdom's leaders decided to kill all male slaves above 10 years. But because there was so much war going on, even the remaining slave women and children were too many, and the price of slaves reduced. So now almost everyone had a slave. Even slaves had slaves. In 1833, it was estimated that two-thirds of the population in the kingdom's capital, Antananarivo, were slaves. Now, because slave exports were prohibited, there were a lot of bankrupt former slave traders who now joined the prisoners of war in the slave market in some bizarre form of poetic justice. Creditors actually drove up interest rates to bankrupt their debtors so they would recoup their money by selling them in the slave market. As the Marina Empire increased in size from the 1820s, the slave labor was redirected to farms and transportation of goods for trade. But the plantation owners and slave traders from the surrounding islands still had a large demand for slave and cheap labor to run the sugar plantations. They were not amused with the Marina Kingdom's ban of slave exports. With the support of the French, slave traders and plantation owners from the surrounding islands tried to take over some of the islands of Madagascar. These attacks made the Marina Kingdom very paranoid and xenophobic. They expelled all foreigners except those directly benefiting them. So for the most part, the slave trade in Madagascar during this period was mostly internal. But the slave trade wasn't illegal everywhere in Madagascar. Because although the Marina Kingdom had colonized a large portion of the key trade routes, there were still some regions that were free from their rule, mostly in the west coast of the island. In these areas, Mauritian plantation workers bought slaves from Madagascar. They bought them from Arab Antalaotra, who worked with Indian Karanians. The slave trade in Madagascar, both internal and external, continued for most of the 1800s. But by the time the French violently colonized Madagascar in 1896, the slave trade in most places was mostly dwindled for trickle. The French abolished it once they colonized the island. Let us now move to Mozambique. A little backstory here. In Mozambique, the Portuguese were the colonizing nation. 
Once most of the previously claimed North African territories were taken by the Omani Arabs, the Portuguese focused on their remaining strongholds, mostly Mozambique. Mozambique then became an important market for slaves sourcing from Zimbabwe, the northern parts of South Africa and Malawi. The slaves were supplied by the Prazeros and the Yao that we spoke about earlier, and also the Swahili and Arab caravans organized into the interior communities. From Mozambique, the slaves were shipped by Portuguese, Brazilian, and French traders to Brazil and the Indian Ocean Island plantations. By 1790, 9,000 slaves were being exported from Mozambique every year, and in the 1800s, it is estimated about 1 million slaves left through Mozambique. The Portuguese were pressured into abolishing slavery in Portugal in 1869 and in the African colonies in 1879, but this ban was not effectively enforced until the early 1900s in Mozambique. I think it is very important to talk about the who in history because humans, especially the oppressors, have a way of writing themselves out of the stories that don't age well, like the slave trade. The references to the slave trade of the 18th and 19th century as a transatlantic slave trade or the Indian Ocean slave trade removes the who from the story. Did the ocean capture, sell, and wash away people from the communities to faraway places? No. The slave trade in Central and Eastern Africa is often referred to as the Arab slave trade. And while people of Arab descent were the main external traders for hundreds of years, they weren't the only players. We have African chiefs and kings leading slave raids, violently ripping people from their communities. We have the French and the Portuguese playing a very important role in creating the huge demand for slave labor. And to a lesser extent, we have also seen Brazilians and Indians involved. And this is only one podcast episode. So digging further, you will find multiple other nationalities involved. The slave trade was officially over in the early 20th century in most of the region, but the effects of the slave trade went on well into the 20th century. African communities and kingdoms had been decimated by the trade. This is well documented in West Africa. In Central and East Africa, it is best documented in the Congo Kingdom, that is in modern-day Angola. The main cause of the decline and eventual collapse of the Congo Kingdom was the intensified slave trade introduced by the Portuguese. This trade ripped the young, strong men and women from their communities and led to civil wars between communities that had previously collaborated. Beyond the collapse of the kingdoms, there was the collapse of community. Instead of focusing on the forward-looking productive work of building the communities, feeding themselves, innovation, loving on each other and collaborating with other communities, many communities became organized on the basis of either raiding other communities for slaves or defending themselves against slave raiders. This led to the very extractive economic and political institutions that were only reinforced during the persistently brutal and extractive period of colonialism in the region. The slave trade and later colonialism denied Africans the chance to develop their communities and participate in the world trade that boomed during the 20th century on equal terms. It is the Africans giving of their bodies, their labor, their hopes and dreams that enabled the building of inclusive and prosperous nations far away, first in the Arab Peninsula and then in Western countries. From the earlier trade between neighboring African communities, to the Arabs, to the fetishization of African women, to the capitalistic trade of the French, the Arabs, the Swahilis, the Portuguese, the Brazilians and others, the history of slave trade in Central and East Africa is not just one of capitalism. More importantly, it is a story of the destruction of communities, intensification of the rivalries between neighboring communities, and the stripping of the dignity of a people. The effects of slavery might not be as evident in East Africa as they are in West Africa, but the monuments of this trade live on as physical monuments in most East African coastal cities, 
and on islands that were the epicenter, such as Zanzibar and Madagascar, and also in the hearts and psyche of Africans. Please subscribe to the Rilano History Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can write to us at rilanohistory at gmail.com. Did you learn something? Are there topics you'd like us to cover? Any resources you think we'd love to dive into? Let us know.